0: Welcome to the ROI podcast. My name is Ryan Isakainen, ETF strategist here at First Trust. Our goal for this podcast is to discuss some of the questions that financial advisors and their clients have in a very sometimes confusing market environment. Uh, fortunately, I have some of the best resources here at First Trust to have conversations with to discuss some of these topics. And my guest today is Bob Carey, Chief Market Strategist uh, here at First Trust. So Bob, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be with you, Ryan. I love the name of your podcast, the ROI podcast.
0: Well, it's got many layers of meaning. Absolutely. Um, so, to start things off, you've been at First Trust for how long?
1: 32 years.
0: 32 years. Yep. And how in the world did you end up here 32 years ago?
1: Um, well, basically, at the very, very beginning of our firm, um, there was an opening in the research department. And uh, I applied, and I applied, and eventually we, uh, we made it happen in, the, in the, more or less the fall of uh, 1991. So, so here we are 32 years later.
0: That's amazing. Um, you spend quite a bit of your time traveling around the country, talking with investment professionals, um, and you kind of get feedback on you know, what you're talking about. And I want to start there. When you talk to advisors around the country this year, so we're midway through, a little past midway through 2023, uh, what is the most common question that you're getting today?
1: Mm, great great question. I, I, I would say that, that, that I think a lot of people are just very uh, surprised that the market is up this year and up as much as it is. and I think everybody knows that the market has been driven largely by a handful of stocks Um, so it kind of begs the question what's driving those stocks right and I I think a couple things have happened but I I would say that's probably the biggest question that I'm getting right now is you know why is the market up this year Uh, we clearly see um, an economy that is uh, doing okay inflation is coming down which I think has been helpful Um, the employment situation is still solid at this point but we've got the Fed raising interest rates aggressively and normally when the Fed raises rates you do eventually see the market roll over. And we have a recession, we see valuations come down um, and we're all kind of waiting for the the next shoe to drop with all this Fed tightening going on. So it's I can understand why people are apprehensive and kind of wondering well, why is the market up this year. But I think it's pretty I think it's pretty simple. I think ultimately um, I, I think two things happened at the beginning of the year. Um, one of them bad, obviously we saw uh, several rather high-profile financial institutions get in trouble. Right. And, uh, you know, what's what's kind of interesting about both of the, the major institutions that failed was that they bought too many treasuries hmm. uh, back in 2020 and 21 when yields were really, really low. And then, uh, obviously, you know, interest rates went up and the value of those investments went down. Uh, I've never seen a bank fail because they bought too many treasuries. Right. I mean, it's just kind of, Talk about a sign of the times, but it, it, it kind of tells you how low um, interest rates were a couple of years ago. But the, the other thing that happened is uh, all of a sudden everybody got this chat GPT thing. Um, it beca- I mean, every, everywhere I went, everybody's like, hey, have you messed around with chat GPT? Right. It was it was like, you know, and, and all of a sudden this fascination with machine learning and, te- and artificial intelligence, if you want to call it that. I mean, there's all these different things that really got people very excited about you know the companies that might be involved in this, and, and there's no question we all can kind of see this is the future to some extent. But I think that really uh, drove the market quite quite significantly. This reminds me a lot of the of the late 90s. You know, we, we got the internet, we got mobile phones, uh, we could see the world was changing, and a lot of good things that might happen four, five, 10, 20 years down the road. You know, it gets pulled forward, and the and valuations go up.
0: And, and sometimes it overshoots, like it did at the dot com bubble. A lot of a lot of ideas were pulled forward and pulled forward
1: too much. No question.
0: Are, are we at a similar state now, or uh, wh- where do you think we are with respect to that hype cycle?
1: We might be. I, there's valuations are are definitely very high for a handful of companies that are kind of the higher profile companies that it were that were that were talking about. I mean, a lot of these stocks were beaten up last year too, right. so they did get a bit of a kind of a correction if you will last year um, and it could very well be that maybe they were due for a little bit of a rebound maybe the correction went a little too far for some of these companies I think that might be part of it but the other thing that's happened this year is we have seen inflation come down mm-hmm. uh, and stocks are very sensitive from a valuation perspective to obviously at interest rates but really to inflation rates that's that's a big big part of it so uh, the inflation rate coming down um, I think has probably driven down the discount rate for companies to some extent. I think that's been helpful to, to, and I think that's been really helping valuations for the market this year.
0: Yeah. So are there any particular areas, you, you, you brought up um, ChatGPT and AI, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how that's going to play out. but. When you think about broad industries and sectors, are there any that intersect with that that you think will be better off five years down the road, even more near term than that?
1: Yeah, I'd say probably the semiconductor industry. I think obviously software c- comes to mind. But I think there's there's going to be a lot of applications um, that will improve efficiencies in a variety of industries. There's mm-hmm. there's no question about it. But it, you know, we always kind of wonder. You know, the semiconductor industry. Has grown a lot over the years, but there's always these cycles, right? And it, we always kind of wonder, you know, we have a down cycle, and we kind of wonder, well, what's going to be the next big thing that will drive the need for more, more bandwidth, more, you know, information, more data to be shared, ultimately? And I, I think we may have found that with with, with AI and machine learning. I, I, you know, this has all been, you know, brewing for a long, long time, but it's 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 something that the public now has something they can they can mess around with they can see it and it's been going on for a long time but you know a lot of things that we use we don't realize it but there's these machines are learning a lot of things about what we're doing Um, but I think it's it's much more tangible now Mm -hmm. and I think that's where the excitement comes in.
0: So there's a lot of building happening with semiconductor foundries and and factories and it, it seems like all over the country that's happening. Um, and that takes a little while to play out, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, all Isn't the that? the cycle is very long. Yeah. Uh, to build uh, a facility that produces semiconductors, it's not something that you just break ground and you start producing chips next year. Yeah. It's it is um, as quick as maybe three years to as long as ten years before these things actually finish getting long, long getting built. I, I was just in Ohio um, a couple of months ago, and I could see where where. Uh, some of these these uh, facilities are being built, and, you know, you just, you just vast amounts of land and, and these enormous slabs of concrete, if you will, that kind of stabilize. Um, it's a long process, and these, these plants, a lot of things have to be done and done precisely before they ever produce a chip. So we're talking about billions of dollars in investments, and, um, you know, whether or not those investments pay off really depends on whether or not demand is there, for these ships down the road so it's not without some risk and and the market's always trying to gauge those risks and last year we could see there was a slowdown in the the tech sector a bit of a hangover from you know the work from home everybody getting equipped to work from home you could really see tech spending was down Um, and this year it looks like things have maybe stabilized a little bit in that space and now we've got something to think about for the next several years that has the market excited but um, you know, some of these companies that are in the semiconductor industry uh, that have gone up a lot this year don't even own any plants. They just, they design these, these chips right. and they rely very heavily on plants being built around the world that might not come online, some of them, for many, many years. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, th- it's a development, that's, it's exciting, but it's not without risk. And they're, you know, last year the market was very aware of these risks. I mean, we we, we saw these some of these stocks get cut in half. This year, some of these stocks are, you know, up, you know, 100 percent or more. Some of them. So uh, it's not not for the faint of heart, for sure.
0: So I think of semiconductors and some of the stimulus acts that have been passed, um, the Chips Act, and, and you know the the way that that is framed is that this is a, a geopolitical issue, and we need to have manufacturing reshored. In the U.S., uh, do you think that's having any impact now, or is this something that is not as relevant?
1: Yeah, I would say the jury's out. We, you know, we've never really had anything resembling an industrial policy in this country. A lot of countries have, you know, industrial policies kind of favored industries that get, um, you know, more or less coddled. Well, sometimes those industries become less competitive when they have a lot of government uh, assistance, and so. Uh, the free market person inside of me is skeptical that this is having any impact at all. I yeah. think I think it w- I think it's natural if you're running a business that relies on outsourcing, and your your supplies are coming from parts of the world where you, you might not be able to get access. Um, it makes sense that you would want to maybe onshore some of that. I think onshoring has been going on anyways, mm-hmm. um, and and I think I think Congress um, knew. I think a lot of people realize the importance of of onshoring. Uh, And I think Congress wanted to get involved and and take some credit for it in in a way. You know, that's how it is. So
0: um, when you think about investing from a U.S. versus international perspective, especially, you know, at at the point that we're at today, midway through 2023, um, do you have any thoughts on where investors should be looking from an allocation perspective? Should they be tilting more towards international than they have in the last few years or should they stay in the domestic side of things?
1: I think near-term, I would say that maybe, you know, international will will keep up and maybe even outperform a little bit uh, over the next year. When I look at earnings estimates for the rest of the year, I look at estimates for next year, I would say the trend is probably a little bit better for overseas markets than than they are for for the, say, the S&P 500 domestically. However, um, you know, for the last 10, 11, 12, 13 years, it has been, US market you know really has been the place to be especially the S&P 500 and the reason for that um, is not the normally the currency plays a huge role in that you know, if you want to um, invest overseas um, you know you, you expect it that those stocks to outperform overseas typically the dollar weakens when that happens and the dollar goes up you want to be in US stocks normally that's the relationship but in the last seven or eight years or so uh, the dollar is Pretty much been range-bound. Yes, it did surge last year, but it's come back down. The dollar is not the swing factor anymore, like it used to be. What's what really is what's happened is U.S. companies, the S&P 500 companies, have a significantly higher. Getting back to your your podcast term, uh, ROI, return on investment for U.S. companies today. Looking at the S&P, they are much much higher producing cash flow machines. Ultimately than companies overseas. Um, you know, So many companies that have really come on the scene here in the last five, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, for the most part, those companies that are very, very high return, high growth businesses are based here in the U.S. They're, they're very multinational, typically. They do business everywhere but those companies happen to be based here in the United States for the most part. Why is
0: that? Is that from uh, education or regulatory standpoint? Like what what causes that?
1: We are, I think it's just technology. I I really do think the internet age, just going back to the 90s, um, the the age of the internet and information technology and all the technologies that we enjoy, it really is a, a global phenomenon. But for the most part, the companies that have really figured out how to make um, make more with less, which is really what entrepreneurs do. It, it's it's the U.S. We are the most entrepreneurial country in the world. And I, it, it's uh, you could argue that maybe we kind of lost our way for, for a while back, maybe in the 60s and 70s. But I, I would say in this day and age, it's, it's pretty obvious that we have much, much better businesses and we have a better environment for creating um, these kinds of companies. You think about all the companies in and biotechnology and, and semiconductors and, and software for the most part this, the leading companies, uh, even automotive manufacturing today I mean the, the, the leading kind of company in that industry over the last couple of years uh, is Tesla and Tesla is based here in the. US Yes, they do business all over the world, but there's really no equivalent a lot of companies that want to compete with Tesla that might be based in Germany or China or Japan, but nobody's able to no, been able to figure out how to make Uh, vehicles and make them as profitably as as a company like Tesla. But we see that again and again. These companies really emerging from the US. Just to put some numbers to it, um, I calculate that the ROI for the S&P 500 this year at the balance sheet level is nearly three and a half percentage points higher than it is for most developed countries around the world. So we just simply have higher cash flow Generating companies that dominate our market.
0: So why don't why don't technology companies blossom in other countries? Like, what is it about the U.S. that causes these companies to be located here? Tesla, you mentioned, you know, all these they, they can locate other places. Why do they locate here?
1: Well, you need capital and you need people to make things happen. And um, you know, we you look at the the list of the top, um, you know, engineering and science and STEM related. Programs around the world, universities and whatnot—boy, um, we, we heavily dominate those that list. You look at the top, say, you know, hundred engineering schools in the world. I mean, half those uh, those universities are based here in the United States. So I think I think we've always had this 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 technology-driven economy, but I think especially now, in this day and age, with all these new industries that have been created, it just kind of like feeds a on its, cycle? That's what it is, exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, that that is probably good news for us and hopefully that virtuous cycle continues despite efforts to yeah. disrupt. Yeah, I mean,
1: you think about it, you, you run a business, you need uh, you need capital and we have, you know, obviously enormous amounts of capital right. um, and you need, you need knowledge and you need, you also need uh, at the same time you need uh, private property protection, you need intellectual property protection. Uh, we, we tend to do a much better job of protecting Intellectual capital in the in the United in the U.S. compared to many many other places.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, another broad question for you. Um, what do you think is the biggest misconception that investors have or f- investment professionals have as they're thinking about how to allocate capital? Where we are today, we've had this surprising surge in. in Market and uh, in, in equity markets this year. Um, is there any misconception that you come across that you think you know this would be a good thing to discuss?
1: Yeah, I I think one thing that uh, that I keep mentioning in my in my comments and my presentations that seems to be getting some traction. I, I'm trying to get people to think about things more from a longer term perspective. Obviously, there's a lot of focus on markets short term. I mean, I'm I'm reading the. The newspaper this morning online and you know they're they're talking about you know a lot of things that that might happen this week we got all these reports coming out we've got earnings coming out and it's important to focus on that maybe to some extent it's very easy to lose sight of the long term and, and I think that is I've been thinking about this a lot lately a lot of obviously a lot of folks getting older a lot of baby boomers are, are, are well into their retirement years already a lot of them are about to retire um, at the same time, I've been going to birthday parties here lately and, and buying birthday cards. And um, at the bottom of the shelf, there are, there are birthday cards for people turning 100 today. I'm pretty sure that market didn't exist uh, not that many years ago. I certainly, I mean, the idea of living to be 100 years old was just, you just didn't, you didn't think about that. So, you know, for somebody that's in their 60s or 70s, um, you know, obviously we never know how long you know, where, where, where any of us is going to be around but the, the need to, to think about the potential to be alive in, in well under 80s, 90s, even 100, uh, I, I think it's, you know, you've got that going on, and of course we have got, we've got these elevated levels of inflation over the last couple of years, so it, it really kind of, I think, forces us to think about the long-term, knowing that, hey, the market near-term, a lot of things can happen, but we know that from a long-term perspective that it, it's investors, that win, and uh, a lot of folks are um, you know buying t bills, thinking they're making investments, so Mike you're you're not really making an investment, you're you know hopefully earning a decent rate of return enough to offset inflation, but we all know that that um, you know th- those rates can be very short lived and they're, they're probably not going to live up to where the inflation rate's going to go over the long term, especially after taxes right. So
0: if that's the case, and I think that's a really interesting point, that people are living longer. And when it comes to, there's certain rules of thumb that we all learned early on, that you take your, your age and you know, that should be your allocation to right. uh, bonds and it kind of you know, right. grows over time. Is, does that change the math? I
1: think, I think for some people it might. I really do. Yeah. I really do. I think, it, 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 I think for a lot of people, I, I started my career, just to back up a little bit, I started my career in the 80s. And I saw a lot of people retiring and selling literally all of their equities. Yeah. And saying, hey, at this point, I just, want, I just want some income. If I can earn six, seven, eight, nine 9% my, on my bonds, if you will, my fixed income, my CDs, whatever people were buying back then, um, you could argue that, well, that, that kind of made sense because inflation was coming down and the, the rates of return were, were real. I mean, you actually had a spread between the inflation rate and what you earned on your interest. Um, that that spreads very thin right now. I mean, it's gotten a little bit better as the Fed has increased rates this year, but uh, you know the, the the reality is that that transition to being maybe a little bit more cautious, having more safe assets. I think that transition for a lot of people probably should be pushed out further into the future. I mean, it, everybody's situation is unique, and I think sure. that's I think that's that's the art of of being a financial advisor, financial planner, is knowing your client and their circumstances and uh, for some people, maybe they can't have uh, a lot of risk in their portfolio. But I think to the extent that you can plan uh, for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, I think it's important just, just to be open to that idea.
0: Yeah, if someone's retiring at 65 and living to 75, that's 10 years. If they're retiring at 65 and planning to live, you know, 85, 95, it's, Look, it's a whole lot of... On
1: a on a personal note, my, my grandmother's sister died last year at 105. <laughs> I mean, my grandmother died in 1976, just to give you some perspective, and she was, you know, at that point in her, in her 60s, uh, the idea that her younger sister would be alive in 2022, it's like, it just kind of blows your mind. So, you, you never know.
0: That's remarkable. 105?
1: 105.
0: 105. Wow. Um, so that makes me think of the healthcare sector, right? And that's that's an area that I know, um, you know, you, you have talked about a lot over the years. Yep. Biotechnology, healthcare, some of the things that are happening in that sector. Are there? Do you have any thoughts on just broadly speaking the healthcare sector or biotech specifically?
1: Yes, we have been um, watching very closely the number of products that are in clinical trials. I think that's a very important thing to keep a handle on when it comes to pharmaceutical companies, biotechnology companies. These companies um, can't just come up with something and sell it in the marketplace. They have to prove that these products are safe, effective, all those different things. Uh, so the number of, of different products, that number keeps climbing. You can really see the, um, the investments are being made in R&D and clinical trials. Um, at the same time, we have been in a bit of a moratorium on mergers between maybe bigger companies in the biotech space, for example, or maybe companies in the pharmaceutical space that want to um, maybe broaden their pipeline or have more products. Um, you know, that's that's always a challenge if you're running a company in the pharma sector uh, in, in biotechnology is you, you need new products um, that have patent protection, that have something novel, something new that can create some um, shareholder value. So they're, they're, the race is on to, uh, to gain control of these of these these products down the road, and in the past there'd always be mergers a lot of a lot of activity one of the reasons you might buy, for example, shares of a biotechnology company is the prospect that it might be taken over one day. Um, we have really seen a moratorium on that the last couple of years the The current uh, occupant of the White House, uh, his administration is very hostile. To mergers in general yeah. um, and, and and it's we just I think the market is kind of waiting to see you know where where the next big big deal might happen and we have had some deals happen here lately and, and we've started to see maybe a bit of a thaw uh, market forces are naturally going to give us this result, but we 've got a pretty heavy hand from the government right now holding some of this back
0: yeah that is that is interesting because um, you know, that the usual state of biotech companies is they have trouble having the capital to make it through phase three trials. That's right. And so having a, a larger, better-funded biotech or pharmaceutical company can come in handy in kind of exactly. going through those.
1: No question. Yeah, the concern that I have, without the, the risk capital necessary to make these investments, to get these products to marketplace, we could very well see... Uh, a drought at some point in new products, and at the same time, uh, we've got people living longer. Who, and the longer you are alive, the more likely you are going to have something happen to you. So it's um, so you can't help but wonder uh, if, if in fact, we are going to see the future like we maybe thought a couple of years ago. We'll see if this plays out. But I, I have faith in, in in technology and eventually policies heading in the right direction. But I think it's pretty fair to say that there has been a little bit of a political cloud over the pharmaceutical and biotech sector the last couple of years. And uh, it's left the stocks, I, I would say, reasonably priced compared to a lot of other areas of the marketplace.
0: Right. Another area, Bob, that I have been getting questions on, and I'm sure you have as well, is when you look at the structure of equities, what has performed well versus not as well this year, it is heavily favored large cap stocks, especially some of the companies that we were referring to before that are related to AI and have gotten a boost from some of those technology, uh, multiple expansion. Um, But I guess my question is, why is it that there's been such a a trend over the last decade where small and mid-sized companies, their stock valuations have gotten a lot cheaper relative to large cap stocks? Do you have any thoughts on why that is taking place and is it going to continue or is this going to reverse at some point?
1: At some point I do think it will reverse itself. When you look at the outlook for earnings growth over the next two years, uh, small and mid-cap indexes actually have a better earnings outlook than say the S&P 500. So I think the market eventually will recognize that. I think the market recognized that last year. We actually did see mid-caps especially do relatively well last year. And I think through the first couple of months of the year we saw the same thing but then we had these bank failures, then we had this massive flight to safety, right? Um, one of the things I've been watching very closely for a long time is the, the difference in returns between the S&P 100 index, the OEX index. If you look at that year to date versus the S&P 500, that gap uh, is enormous. And normally those two indexes sit right on top of each other over the very, you go back you know, over the decades, very, very little difference in returns between 100 and the 500. Um, this year, the 100 is outperforming by the most it's outperformed the the, 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 the 500 since 1999. Hmm. And you think about what was going on in 1999, same sort of thing, a lot of excitement yeah. about technology. So um, to some extent, I feel like we're reliving the late 90s to some extent. Um, the one difference, um, I, I think, is is that returns on capital are substantially higher today. Most of these companies that are doing well in the stock market, for the most part of companies that have got you know, a lot of cash on hand, they've got proven business models, they, they generate a lot of cash. Um, so the, the, the upward swing in valuations that's driven the, the, say the S&P 500 this year, it really is because of a handful of stocks. Um, uh, I, I do think that the improvements in returns on capital have been significantly higher for larger companies than they have been for smaller companies. So, you know, you think about some of these big technology companies, you just don't find these types of companies to the same extent in some of these small cap indexes. So, uh, it might be that we need uh, a correction or maybe a stiff correction or even a, a, a pull, substantial pullback mm-hmm. in the tech sector to, for the market to begin to broaden out, uh, which is exactly what happened back in the early 2000s.
0: Looking at returns from 2000, 2001, 2002 you really did have some pretty decent performance in those mid and small cap Yeah, stocks.
1: as long as you didn't speculate on the dot-com stocks that really? melted down and the tech stocks actually did pretty well during yeah, that yeah. environment. I mean, it was, you know, banks did well, the energy stocks, the things that, that nobody wanted to buy in 1998, 99 actually turned out to be pretty good investments over the next five years.
0: Um, okay, final question, um, energy. The yeah. energy sector has been really confusing for a lot of investors. Over the last couple of years, went from COVID where energy stocks were rock bottom valuations because there was so much uncertainty to a point where they surged last year. This year, they've got reined in again. How should we think about energy stocks?
1: Well, the reality is that the energy sector is very diversified. There's a lot of different companies that do different things. Um, But the backdrop of lower oil and gas prices, natural gas prices, being uh, as low as they are, oil prices coming down, um, it's it's not a good environment for investors to want to take on a lot of risk in that particular sector. You've got uh, producers cu- cutting back production which in the end should eventually lift prices, um, but it's it's amazing how cheap some of these stocks are. A lot of these stocks at six, seven, eight times earnings. The problem is that earnings for the rest of the year, in the next year those earnings estimates have been coming down. So you've got this massive headwind of earnings expectations going down from a near-term perspective. Um, it's still an important sector and we, we can't do really, really anything without energy but investors just whenever a sector rolls over and the profitability begins to come down and you've got returns on capital that are you know going down at a time when there's excitement about other sectors you can really see the market preferring those companies where returns are higher, maybe headed higher.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if investments are not incentive, we don't have incentives to make investments over the long term. Doesn't that mean that we're going to have less production and, therefore, likely higher prices for for oil and gas? Quite possibly, yeah. Which which could be good for the earnings of those companies, I, like
1: I would think. I had an economics professor that said the cure for high prices is high prices, <laughs> and the right. cure for low prices is low prices. Eventually, free markets um, are amazing. Right? Exactly, and at some point. You would think um, if, if investment is low and, and production goes down, at some point, you're going to see some, some pricing power getting restored. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen this year.
0: Yeah. All right, Bob. Well, thank you for having this conversation. Uh, thanks for all the, uh, the wisdom. And thank you for all the uh, financial professionals and investors that may have joined us today. Uh, again, I'm Ryan Isakainen, and this was the ROI Podcast.